0: All right. Merry Christmas to everybody. It's that time of year. I'm excited about it. Uh, how many of you, um, we're going to be in Mark 2, how many of you, you know, don't, don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us um, grew up in a time and a setting where Sundays were treated differently than other days. Um, did, did some of you grow up like that? Sunday was a different day. Um, and it's a different day for us now, for most of us, I know. Some people have to work on Sundays. Um, but as a society, as a, as a culture, do you, feel like, do you feel like we've gotten to a place where for a lot of our society or our world, Sunday's just another day, isn't it? It's a day for work or play. or. And I remember when I was growing up, you'd hear the preacher rant about people Going to the lake on Sunday, you ever hear that? Um, country preachers usually snort and yell and holler about it, and I get that. I can appreciate that. You know, it's as as Christians, uh, we should view Sunday as a different as a different day. I know we have Sun Sunday traditions that I really appreciate, and it's been hard this this fall because we've traveled most weekends. My family has traveled to go follow Tuck and watch Tuck play ball and. Man, we have worked so hard to get back. Y'all, yeah, we went to Boston to watch a football game and made it back to Red Oak. I couldn't believe it, but we made it. Um, we flew, we got an early flight that Sunday morning because uh, I wanted to be with my church. I wanted to be with my people. You know, something for me, and I don't know if you feel this way, something special about gathering on Sunday and worshiping the Lord. But you know, you know something else that's very special on Sunday? Taking a nap. I used to, uh, Hank, Hank will either appreciate this or be offended by it, I used to, me and Little used to go out to the barn, and we worked at a, another camp, it was like a dude ranch, and I would have the NASCAR race on, and it would be playing, and I would usually stretch out at some point on Sunday afternoon and take a nap, fall asleep uh, to a sporting event on TV or on the radio, something different about Sundays, at least there should be, and uh you you i think probably especially feel it in the south i think it's it's a cultural thing in the south i think we do sundays uh, a little bit better than than maybe they do on the west coast i remember going out to visit a friend in denver and he said oh man sunday if anything is a more busy day out here you know he's talking about just how that was the day people did a lot of their activities and if you've grown up with a kid that was in 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 Travel ball or travel sports, those tournaments usually on Sundays. But but Sunday for us is similar to but a little different than what the Sabbath day was for ancient Israelites. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Now, we're, we're going to see Jesus make a statement tonight that is sort of, I think, to this point we've seen him heal a leper which is a, a really uh, big deal culturally that he would interact with a leper. We've seen him defeat demons. We've seen him defeat Satan himself. We've seen him call people to repentance. You know, no, no preacher now can do that. I can't stand up here and say, I'm calling you to repent. It's, it's the word of God, and, or on behalf of what the Lord would say, we would call people to repent, but it's God's word. It's not man's word. Jesus spoke a message of repentance. What else did he do? Called disciples. He's like, come follow me, emulate me, pattern your life after mine. Most of us probably wouldn't want to, I wouldn't be comfortable telling people to do that. You know, like, do everything I do, except for some of the things I do. Don't do those, you know. And Jesus is like, just come follow me. I'll show you how to do it, you know. I'll show you how to do it. And Jesus has established himself in so many ways. He'll he'll establish himself over the natural world, um, you know, the creation order. When he does things like calming a storm or, you know, telling a storm to be quiet, he's very authoritative. Jesus is very authoritative, and one of the things I think that's so enigmatic and 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 um, effective and. Uh, efficacious, uh, like these powerful words that describe these depths and areas of Jesus's sovereignty, control, and authority. That He has this authority, but He also really genuinely cares about people. Like He really genuinely loves you and cares about you, you know. And, and so, all these things that Jesus has done to us, to establish Himself, what He will use to drive the stake in the ground with the religious radicals and fanatics is the principle and the law of the Sabbath, what the Sabbath is, what Sabbath worship is. And so we'll see it in our text tonight. It's not the first time it's happened, but it, it's, it's the first time in the book of Mark that we'll see this. So Mark chapter 2 and um, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. Now, the Sabbath, for us to understand, especially for our younger listeners the Sabbath is, that's a word that it simply means this. To keep this simple, the word Sabbath means to cease. To cease. Everybody say cease. 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 Just means, hey, shh, just stop what you're doing, just chill. That's the way we would say it maybe today, just chill. You older folks, y'all good with the word chill, right? You've heard of that enough that, okay, just chill out, just chill, just cease. So the word Sabbath, when you see the word Sabbath in Scripture, it's pointing to an Old Testament principle that goes back to creation. Literally, this appears in Genesis 2, second chapter of the Bible. When God is creating the world and the cosmos and human life and animal life, and he's creating all the, the, that he would create, and then he gets to the seventh day, and it says on the seventh day he ceased from all of his work. He just stopped, and he rested. Now, God doesn't need to rest. So that idea rest is, is a deeper idea than just taking a nap. It's ceasing, reflecting, looking, observing, taking it. And for us, it's worship. It's, it might be feasting fellowship with with friends but it means to cease and then uh this is also um if you've ever heard zach mabry teach or or preach on um creation and and what most of us hold to in terms of uh what we believe about creation we believe in a literal most of us i don't speak for everybody but i believe in a literal six-day creation and where i think the the greatest argument for that comes from is that on the seventh day god ceased and rested and then he, he he would take that idea and he would weave that into the pattern of life for ancient Israelites he would say okay on six days you're going to work and make a living and do what you got to do and you're going to plant taters and beans and corn and wheat and you're going to work and you're going to plow and then on the sabbath seventh day just stop what you're doing and just cease from it all and just rest and worship is a principle that God exampled for us and that he then wove into the fabric of society. By even, he even wrote it into the old covenant law that the Israelites would follow. And then he reiterated it before they went into the promised land 40 years later. So the Sabbath is the idea that, that God would command his people to cease from what they were doing one day a week, And just rest and observe and worship. That's that's a pretty good idea, isn't it? Do you like that idea? Yeah, I, I, I really like that idea. And I think we are busy people. And if there's ever been a generation that needs to cease and rest one day a week, we're it. That might even mean, for us, the principle of Sabbath might even mean cease from, you know, technology or from, I don't know. I don't want to get legalistic about it, but. For us, it just means that we need to stop and we need to rest and we need to keep the Sabbath principle alive. But in, in Jesus' day, the Sabbath was was part of Jewish law, and so these people are walking along, and it's the Sabbath day. We know that it's the Sabbath day, and they're walking along, and they walk through a grain field. Now, there was an ancient law that God had put in place for travelers, where if you're traveling, you could you could pick grain, you could you could pick fruit or produce or vegetables from the fields of farmers. It was sort of a crop share as a way that as a society, they supported one another. So as you're traveling, you'd be traveling on foot and you'd be hungry and you could stop and you could pull grain. Now you, the, the law stated you couldn't harvest it. So there was a distinction made even the way God gave the law, like you couldn't gather big bunches of it and carry it with you to take it to the market, but you could eat enough that you'd be full. Um, we used to go out in the eastern part of the state and go deer hunting, and we would hunt on this one soybean farm, and I always loved walking with Little through the fields because uh, she would uh, she would she would pull soybean pods, and she would she would snack on those. She'd fill her pockets up, and I remember one time uh, having a conversation about I don't I don't think the farmer's going to miss a few of these, you know? It's like not going to hurt his bottom line or his profit. So the idea was go through the the fields, and you could take food, and that would be food to sustain you while you traveled. So it was actually a law that God had given as a grace or a gracious gift to the people. So we've got two laws at work that God's given. One is it's the Sabbath, so cease and rest, and part of that would be eat and enjoy, and then the other law being an act of God's grace that travelers would be able to get food for their journey while they were traveling. So you've got, this in this one sentence, this one verse, you see a lot of God's grace being extended to people. Do you see it? It's a day of rest. It's a day of eating and fellowship. And so that's what the disciples are doing. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I find it interesting. It seems like they must have been following him. They were just like obsessed with him, you know just following him along. Hey, what do you got? Can you imagine the scrutiny? We were watching a documentary on Taylor Swift the other night, and uh, I, am, I am a Swifty all the way, man. Like, I'm, I'm all in, you know. I'm not really. But, uh, but it was fascinating. I'm always fascinated by, I'm very fascinated by famous people and what their life must be like. I read where one NFL superstar drives about a 15-year-old minivan around town that's got blacked out windows and he said that way nobody knows what i'm in you know he's got a bugatti but he leaves that parked and and so uh, i imagine like what the stress the constant stress and pressure is for a celebrity jesus sort of had that but it wasn't just stress and pressure it was constant scrutiny You ever feel like you ever had a season of life where you just want to say, man, leave me alone. Get off my back. Maybe it's your boss or maybe it's someone, you know, in your inner circle. Be like, give me a break. Jesus constantly being scrutinized. And so they're following him along. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. So I love what Jesus says here uh, in verse twenty five. He says to them, Have you never read have you never read your Bible? And this is this is really when we read this. Uh, we need to pause because Jesus will do this to them a lot. They prided themselves like capital P. In my in my um, journal, when I was kind of writing my own, the way I typically will work through a passage is, I'll spend a week or two just writing my own commentary, and I and I I was looking back through that today, and across the middle of that page, a capital P R I D E. The 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 Pharisees prided themselves on their command of the Scripture. I mean, they knew the Bible. Like, they knew it. They had memorized huge portions of it, and, you know, they really took pride in that. And Jesus says, you guys never read the Bible? Just let that sink in for a minute, you know. Now, he could do that. You know, we got to be careful being smart Alex, you know. Uh, but he could do that, and so he says, hey, have you, have you never, let me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you guys a story. David, remember him? Which David was like, the ultimate Israelite king. They all knew who he was. So, they, of course, they knew this story. And then he tells them a story about what the story was, that David was running from Saul. David goes into um, this one community, this one town. His men are starving. They're so hungry. And they asked the priest, Abiathar, um, if he would give them what's called the showbread, which this goes back to like back in the ancient days in the tabernacle or the temple, the synagogue, they would have bread that would be put out as part of the ceremonial practice, but it wasn't supposed to be eaten um, like there, there were some rules and restrictions and regulations that went into how that bread was to be handled. And David and his guys show up, and they're starving, and the priest gave it to him. So he uses that as an example. He says, hey, remember the story? You, you guys must, maybe you haven't read this. So kind of, and he's like, David and his guys, they ate the bread. Remember that? We're eating grain. In fact, what he's doing is, is not only are, by eating this grain are they not wrong, but there actually there is a biblical provision for it. And and so the problem was the Pharisees had taken a lot of liberty to so, so God's here's God's rule for the Sabbath. God had God gave man the Sabbath, and here was the rule don't work. Just chill. Cease from work. And then he said, and that's that's it's a good thing. What the Pharisees and the religious radicals had done is they had said, "I know what. Let's make a bunch of rules to go on top of that." And they had written twenty-four chapters of laws about the Sabbath that people were supposed to follow. I, I, I jotted a few down. Actually, John MacArthur jotted a few down, and I copied and pasted it. I want to read these to y'all. These are crazy. I mean, just crazy. You ever, you ever have a, a has there ever been a rule where you're like, why do they make that rule? Why do I got to go 55 right here? I, like my most recent fast driving award that I was given by the city of Sevier, uh, Sev- Sevierville, um, I, I didn't know why you weren't supposed to go that fast. It didn't make sense to me, you know. So you ever, you ever have rules and laws where you're like, why do they do that? Why can't I wear my hat in school, you know? We we're at a we were at a Christian school this week doing a um, chapel service, and I'm about to go up and preach, and I look around. There ain't a hat in the house except for the three snowbird dummies that are with me, and they're all wearing their hats. I was like, "Oh gosh!" I bet we're gonna get, I bet we're gonna hear it about this one. So, so sometimes there'll be rules, and you're like, "What? does that come from?" Well, the the Talmud was full of these. So let me let me share this. This is uh this is from MacArthur. Uh, In the Talmud, there are 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. What was God's law for the Sabbath? Cease, rest, set it aside, just rest, worship, enjoy each other, don't sweat, don't work, don't, don't overdo it. But they got 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. There are 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. There was this one rabbi who spent two and a half years studying one chapter to try to figure out all of the minutia. He wanted to master, like, he's like, if I can take one chapter of this, then I can master that, I'll have done well. Uh, In that one chapter, things like, you could lift something up and put it down, but only from one place, only from um, certain place to certain place. You could lift it up in a public place and put it down in a private place, or you could lift it up in a private place and put it down in a public place, or you could lift it up in a wide place and put it in a legally free place, and that was the wording, and on and on and on. No burden could be carried that weighed more than a dry fig, or half a fig carried two times. If you put an olive in your mouth and rejected it because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole one in the next time, because the palate had tasted the flavor of of the previous olive that's too much work if you threw an object in the air and caught it with the other hand that was a sin if you if you caught it in the same hand it wasn't a sin if a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food and the sabbath overtook him Like the sun goes, like in Shrek, you know, all of a sudden the sun goes down. The Sabbath overtook him. He would have to drop the food and not return his arm or else he would be carrying a burden and that would be sin. A tailor couldn't carry his needle. The scribe couldn't carry his pen. A pupil couldn't carry his books. No clothing could be examined lest somehow you find a lice and inadvertently kill it. Every time I find lice in my clothes, I kill them little suckers. Wool could not be dyed, nothing could be sold, nothing could be bought, nothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent, even if it was sent via a heathen. (laughs) (laughs) No fire could be lit, cold water could be poured on warm, but warm could not be poured on cold. An egg could not be boiled, even if all you did was put it in the hot sand. If you've been to Israel, you know there are times in the year when the sand is so hot you could boil an egg. That was not allowed. It's against the rules. You could not bathe for fear when the water fell off of you, it might wash the floor. If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs couldn't be moved because they could make a scratch considered a rut in the floor. Women couldn't look in a, gla- a looking glass or they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Women couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. (laughs) See rule number one of chapter 24. A radish could not be left in salt because it would make it a pickle. It would pickle it, and that's considered work. No more grain could be pickled than you could put in a lamb's mouth. It goes on and on, laws about wine, honey, milk, spitting, writing, getting dirt off your clothes. You could use only enough ink for two letters, like two alphabetic letters not two written letters. You could have a wad in your ear, but couldn't put false teeth in your mouth. That was forbidden. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, kneading, baking, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, putting on a weaver's beam, making threads, weaving threads, separating threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, on and on and on and on. You talk about heavy laden. The system was oppressive and it was unscriptural, unscriptural and horribly ungodly and brutal and unkind. It's crazy, the rules that they had. So one of the rules was, That you couldn't pick that grain and separate. When you pull the grain, you have to separate the husk from the seed. So think of uh, eating a sunflower seed. You ever do that? A whole sunflower seed. We crack that shell. It would be like that. And in the Talmud, that was considered harvesting. So it was work. So the the disciples in Jesus are harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And so that's why these guys are coming at them. But Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There's so our, our two points, two main ideas. One main idea, but sort of two supporting ideas. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's the main point. Jesus is declaring lordship over the most sacred, controlled portion of religious life in, in Israel. He said, I'm Lord over that. Y'all made all these rules? Uh, well, I'm Lord over that, over your rules. It's very confrontational. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So he leaves and goes another time into the, on the Sabbath into the tabernacle and he heals a guy. We've already seen him do this before. And it's, it's, it, it's so fascinating to me that these religious fanatics were so controlling of the Sabbath that they didn't want a withered a man with a withered hand to be healed by Jesus but that's how control works control doesn't care about the heart or the condition of an individual it cares about power it cares about opposition to what Jesus is doing It it cares about self advancement and so that's what this is really all about. Now, if you go to John chapter 5, there's a story there. It's the first time this is this the grain field incident and then this healing in chapter 3 is uh is uh, is not the first time Jesus has had an incident on the Sabbath. But the previous incident would have preceded him into these two situations. The previous incident was if you go read in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and you might remember the story. There's a man laying there. He's been an invalid for 38 years. What is an invalid? Somebody who can't walk, can't do for themselves. He's poor. He's laying there complete, completely helpless. Would have been atrophied. You know, his, his body would have been atrophied. He would have been very unhealthy, very sick. 38 years he's been laying there. And Jesus walks by him. And there was this, I, I think it was some some later translations of the Bible included a section that said there was a belief that an angel would stir the water and that it was, this, it seems like maybe most commentators think it was some sort of superstition, but if you get into the water, it would heal you. And this guy, um, Jesus, Jesus ends up healing this guy and the guys freak out. And it's a powerful scene because when he heals him, when I mean, we talked about this, when we saw the first healing earlier in Mark, it's not like this progression of healing. It's like this guy goes from crippled, atrophied invalid to healthy, strong, standing on his own. wouldn't have even looked the same. And then the Pharisees come at him, and Jesus confronts them over this because here's what it comes down to. Jesus cares more about people than he does about religious activity. That's the thing. Jesus cares more about you than what you do for him religiously. Like, the word of God to us is a gift from him so that we might know him in the deepest, most personal way. Like, Jesus would sum up religion by saying, look after each other, care for the poor, take care of widows, bring orphans into your home. Like, like there's a way that you can live out pure and undefiled and beautiful and holy religion and it's the way that you serve God and serve man. But it's not in your, like, legal practice. It's not in, it's not in your religion that man has created. So he has this conflict with these guys. And, and it says that when Jesus heals that guy in Jerusalem, they, that's when they start scheming, we've got to get rid of this guy. Why would they want to get rid of him over this? It's simple, y'all, because they had control. And Jesus threatened that. You can't can't have a relationship with Jesus if you don't submit to his authority. Right? You can't. You can't. Like, when Jesus starts to declare himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, this would be the height of blasphemy. Y'all know what blasphemy is? Condemnable by, like, God would condemn blasphemy. Blasphemy is when someone declares himself to be God or equal to God or one with God. So Jesus either is God or he's a blasphemer and so why do they want to kill him over this well because he's because he's threatening their power structure they have power y'all we live in a world like that right now why does the world hate Christianity because surrender to Jesus threatens the power structures of the world that's why you can't make sense of politics and social movements and like the geopolitical scene because we serve Jesus Some trust in horses and some trust in chariots. We trust in the one who heals broken people on the Sabbath because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. We serve him. So I want to give you some observations, kind of final closing just observations to think about as we drive at this main point that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees had made themselves lords of the Sabbath by creating a bunch of laws that they had made up, but Jesus declares himself as Lord of the Sabbath, which means what Jesus is doing is declaring himself to be God. I appreciate it. I think it was two weeks ago when, um, when Joseph was, was talking about uh, when people, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, will say Jesus never claimed to be God. Y'all, you don't say you're Lord of the Sabbath if you're, you're like you're saying I'm God. That's exactly, so in that verse 28, he says, the son of man, who's the son of man? God. Daniel chapter seven, there's this scene where, you know, this God is, like, like this, um, the son of man goes into the presence of the ancient of days. It's like it's a, it's a declaration to deity. Jesus is, de- so, so like he, he makes that, that statement, but then when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the one who came up with this at Sinai, when the commandments were written on the stone and given to Moses, I did that. It's a declaration to his to his deity. The Sabbath was uh, Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I wanted to uh, to also observe that the Sabbath we ha- we need to remember that the Sabbath as a principle was a gift from God. The Sabbath is not only a principle but is a part of. Jewish life was a gift from God. For us, the Sabbath looks a little different. And we talked about this in Hebrews one night. When you look at Old Testament laws and you say, how are we supposed to respond to Old Testament laws? you got to kind of look at each of those laws and see what did Jesus do with that law? So some laws Jesus did away with. So, so some laws, when Jesus fulfilled the new covenant with us where he said now salvation comes through me some of those laws were done away with some of those laws were kept the same and some of those laws were intensified so some of the ancient laws were intensified for instance jesus said the bible says in the old ancient law don't commit murder but i say don't even hate somebody and call them a fool so he's intensifying it so you do that you've had murder in your heart same thing with uh Adultery, where he says, if you've looked at someone lustfully, that's, that's like adultery. So Sometimes Jesus intensifies it. What Jesus does with the Sabbath is he fulfills it, and then he says, come unto me, Matthew chapters 10 and 11. He gets to that one culminating moment where he says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. I am your Sabbath rest. It's a deeper Sabbath meaning. A relationship with Jesus brings rest. If you don't have rest and peace and calm in your life, it might be because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. That's what he provides. So it's a gift. Now, some gifts given are enjoyable, and some gifts given are burdensome. If you've ever been given an animal, hey, I've got this gift for you. It's a puppy. It's going to ruin your life for about three years. It's going to chew up your crocks, it's going to stink up your house. It's a gift. I remember my brother was a senior at Western, and after and he played football. And we, were, we I remember after a game one Saturday, he had this old beat-up Nissan truck. It was about war slap out. But he's in the final semester, man. He's got to finish that fall, do his student teaching in the spring, and then he can go get him a new vehicle if he needs to, you know. And I remember we get, we get out of the game, and my folks were split up at this time. My dad, it was always awkward interactions, and he makes an announcement that he's got a gift for my brother. And my dad lived in a camper. I'm, you know, I'm like, what kind of gift might he have bought, you know? And so we walk, he walks us all out to the parking lot, and he gives my brother a truck. It was a nice truck. It's about a five-year-old Silverado, and then hands him the payment book. <laughs> That's a horrible gift. In fact, that's not a gift, that's a burden. You see? What the Pharisees were doing is they're saying, here's the Sabbath. Now we're going to wear you out with it. Spend the rest of your life trying not to freak out over the Sabbath. Don't lift a fig. Don't pluck a hair. Don't kill a lice. That's not restful. Monday's way better than that, right? Like manic Monday is way better than that kind of silliness. You know, like that's going to wear you out. And so, so the, the gift of the sabbath was for us right it was for us the next observation is that jesus's claim to be lord of the sabbath is a declaration of authority over all of religion and all of religious practice and then the last thing that i want to observe is in chapter three verse six It says at the very end of our text, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Why is that significant? Because the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. Why is that significant? In the ministry of Jesus and in history and in your life and in my life, those who despise and oppose the cross and the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus will work together in demonic alliance to harm the cause of Christ. This is what happened at the trial of Jesus when Pilate and Herod became friends. Jesus is sent by Pilate over to Herod. You judge him. You try him. Herod's like, ah. You do me a trick? Jesus is just not going to cooperate. So he sends him back to Pilate. They, they can't figure out who's going to take responsibility. But it says at the end of that ordeal, they became lifelong friends. Prior to that, they had been enemies. John and I recorded a podcast this week. Why is it that right now, radical Islam is syncing up with progressive feminism? If you're not aware of this, it's a crazy phenomenon that's going on right now. Why is that? Because all who oppose Christ are on the same team at the end of the day. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees start to work together in the end. That's how Jesus will die. It'll be, it'll be in alliance and cooperation between these two people. But that's how the gospel works. The gospel will always bring in scrutiny doing good to honor the lord and serve others will bring scrutiny and maybe even persecution but so will also the joy of the lord accompany that matthew 11:28 then jesus said come to me all of you who weary who are weary and carry heavy burdens and i'll give you rest take my yoke upon you let me teach you because i'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your soul matthew 23 one, in, 1 to 3, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. They don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he set us free from the dominion and the domain of legalism and the pressure that religious fanatics might apply. Jesus wants to have our obedience and worship, and he wants it to be joyful. He wants us to have the freedom to do good no matter what day it is, and to love others and to be merciful. And he knows that he can fulfill us, and when we worship him and surrender him as Lord, we will experience that ultimate fulfillment. During this Christmas season, let's keep our hearts and attitudes in a posture of surrender to the Lord. Let's strive for joy through worship and obedience and rest and fellowship. And let's do everything we do for God's glory and for the good of others. Have a Merry Christmas, season of rest, feasting, fellowship. Christianity should lighten your burden. It shouldn't increase your burden. If you're walking with Jesus and, and, and it's stre- stressing you out, pause and consider the words of Jesus. Come to me. I'll carry the burden for you. He carried the cross for you. He'll carry the burden for you. He'll yoke himself with you. So you're, you're going to walk with him. There's days where you're going to feel the weight of it. But isn't it true that when you're walking in obedience to the Lord and you're walking after Christ... The weight feels lighter. The stress feels more bearable. Jesus sets us free. He said, it's for freedom I've come to set you free. So don't be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, you would free us ultimately from the burden of sin if we don't have a relationship with you tonight. Lord, if there's someone here doesn't know you, I pray that tonight they would hear these words and, and receive your gospel, your truth. Lord, I thank you that you came into this world to fulfill the law, to transform the law, to complete and perfect the law, and to set us free to be yoked with you so that you would carry the weight of our burden and we would grow through the relationship that you've given us and brought us into. I pray that this would be a restful season for us as a church, that we would be worshipful and mindful. I pray that we wouldn't live by legalism, but at the same time, we would live to honor you and worship you and live and walk in obedience to your word. I thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've given us a gift that that will last for our lifetimes and all of eternity and that it's a gift and not a burden. Thank you that your word says in Hebrews 4 that we can approach your throne so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need help us we pray lord to walk in obedience to you and your will and your command because we love you because you first loved us in jesus name amen